I wish you would have kept singing. I could take a drink of water. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, quiet our hearts before your throne. And may we see you and you alone. May our hearts rise up in faith and trust. In repentance and commitment. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And we'll be sure to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Scottish missionary by the name of James Gilmore wrote in his journal when he was experiencing times of dryness in his own walk with God, these words. When I feel I cannot make headway in devotion, I open the book of Psalms and push in my canoe and let myself be carried along in the stream of devotion which flows through that entire book. The current always sets toward God, and in most places it is strong and it is deep. What I want us to do for the next few weeks is to push our canoes into the river of the book of Psalms and let this wonderful stream take us toward God so that we might grow deeper, so that we might, in a more powerful way, connect with the God who is. Because the book of Psalms is all about him. It's about us collectively. It's about us personally, but it's about God. And I want us to see in the book of Psalms these images that the psalmist gives us, metaphors, pictures of who God is so that we might not only know about him, so that we might experience him. Every mood that any human being could face is somehow uncovered and revealed in the book of Psalms. If you're happy, the book of Psalms is filled with happiness and celebration. Are you sad? That's the book of Psalms as well. Are you fearful? Go to the book of Psalms. Are you depressed? Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Whatever you might be feeling emotionally, it's the book of Psalms that uncovers those emotions and takes us to God. Did you know that every psalm has a note of praise in it except one? Psalm 88. That's really a, a downer, to be sure. And I wouldn't encourage you this week to do your devotions in that psalm if you're having a rough time. But the psalms somehow weave through the difficult times and end up looking at God, often in great metaphors so that we might be able to apply those truths to our own life. And so I want us to put our canoe in this river and to start out with today to launch into Psalm 84. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 84. Now, as we open up this particular psalm, I want to mention to you that 
There is an introduction to this psalm, as there is in many psalms. Often musical notations are given 13 times historical situations, backgrounds are given to the psalms. And these are vitally important, not only because they set the tone for what follows, but because they are scripture as well. All the Old Testament manuscripts we have, the oldest of manuscripts, all of them use this introduction, include the introduction. We have no manuscripts without them. They are part of the word of God as well. So, it starts out with, to the chief musician. Why? Because psalms are songs. In the Hebrew, the word for the book of psalms is praises. In the Greek, it's psalms, songs. That's because this book is a collection of worship songs, liturgical songs, songs of devotion to God used in private and public worship. The goal is to take not just the head, but the heart to the throne of grace. And that's what we've got to do. It gives us truth about God to be known, but it draws us into the emotions to be experienced. And that's where we live our life, heart to heart. The time has come and now is when the Father is seeking such to worship him, those who worship him in spirit. And truly, it's heart to heart. Now, notice there's another indication musically here. It says it is, depending on your translation, to be played on the instrument from Gath. You say, what in the world is that? That's what most Bible scholars say. What in the world does that mean? It could refer to a tune, how it's played, or the instrument upon which it is played. For instance, the one translation that I often use says that this psalm is to be played on the instrument from Gath. It was probably a ten-stringed instrument like the lyre or, or like our modern guitar. You know those guitars they make down in Gath? Best place to make a guitar? Yeah, get one of those and play this psalm on that guitar. Did you know that usually when psalms were read, there was musical accompaniment to it? In fact, if I'd thought of it soon enough, I would have had a guitarist behind me as I read through this particular psalm. That's the way it was done. Because they're songs to be sung. They're theology to be believed. They're practical principles to be followed. But here's perhaps the most important thing about the introduction. From the sons of Korah. Ten psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. There's about a dozen different authors from the, in the book of Psalms. We call them the Psalms of David. He wrote half of them, about 75 or so. And even some of those are questioned because when it says of David, it might simply be referring to about David, not written by David. I think David probably wrote half of the psalms. After all, he is the sweet psalmist of Israel, and he would take his harp out and play and compose a wonderful, rich hymn filled with truth about God and truth about us and how the two need to be connected. But this is from the sons of Korah. Does that ring a bell? 
historically, biblically? If you were to read Numbers 16, we read about Korah, one of the sons of Levi, who is going to be the head of the Levite tribe and part of the priestly tribe. And Korah was one who, during the time of the wilderness wandering, decided that Moses was not doing a very good job leading the troops, and so he rebelled. He not only brought along with him a couple friends, um, Dathan and Abiram, but we're told in Numbers 16 that 250 of the well-known leaders of the community joined in their rebellion. Moses said, let's come out and worship. And they said, nah, we're done following you. Moses gave another gracious invitation, and they said, no. Moses said, Lord, what do I do? He says, call him out again. He called him out again. They wouldn't come. And then the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take all the people of the children of Israel and move away from the tents of Korah. Why should we? Just listen. Just move. Okay. What are you going to do, Lord? Trembling of the earth. The earth opens up and swallows Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their possessions and then rumbles back and closes up. I dare say Moses could have done anything after that. <laughs> Whatever he said they would have done. But here's the amazing thing. The children of Korah did not die. What a statement of God's sovereign grace. You see, the children of Korah became singers in the sanctuary and doorkeepers in the temple. They not only were allowed to live, they were allowed to live in the family of God. And not just in the family of God, but to serve in the kingdom of God. And that's what we call grace. This psalm is written by people who knew what grace was all about. I love the story of John Newton. I suppose because of the great contrast with his later life, all due to a real encounter with Christ. John Newton was a slave trader. His mother had taught him hymns and scripture verses, and at some point in time, these, those came back to him, and he gave his heart to Christ. And he wrote thousands of hymns. That's what grace will do to you. It'll make your heart sing. And, and one of our most famous hymns, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Saved a wretch like me. Did you know that hymn is everywhere? I just heard this week there are some teachers, American teachers, about a dozen of them, who are teaching in North Korea. I didn't know Americans were let in. They're teaching mathematics. I guess some are actually teaching English. And one of the teachers is a believer there, and she said, back in our country, there is a song we sing. It's very traditional. Let me teach it to you. And she started singing Amazing Grace. There's a man in the back who opened up his hands, and tears began to come down his cheek as they sang Amazing Grace. They don't have an underground church in North Korea. They have secret believers who connect with codes. And here was code. <laughs> I tell you, when grace touches the heart, 
You never get over it. And the sons of Korah had to write songs of God's amazing grace. And here is one of them. This particular hymn actually falls into three different parts. You'll know the first four verses. That's section number one. And then you have the word selah, which is a musical interlude, but it might also be uh, a statement of reflection. Pause for a moment and think about what you were just singing. Wouldn't that be a great way for us to sing hymns, sing a stanza, and then have the instruments play for one, and we just think about what we just sang? And then there's another section, and then the word selah, at the end of verse 8, and then the third and final section. By the, word, did, by the way, did you notice the word blessed is in each section? Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse 5, starting out the second section, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And then the last verse, third section, blessed are those who trust in you. Here's the path of real blessing. Live in the presence of God. Draw upon the strength of God. And trust God in everything he tells you to do. But this is a psalm of pilgrimage. Verse 5 tells us so. It's like the psalms of ascent or the, the psalms of pilgrimage, 120 all the way through 134. These are the songs that the Hebrew people sang as they were going from their homes up to Jerusalem for the annual festivals. They were traveling songs. Those of you who, in years gone by, would take vacations with your kids know what traveling songs are all about, don't you? I mean, to pass the time, you have to come up with some creative way to keep them from being totally bored, so you sing songs, sometimes foolish songs, sometimes songs of faith, sometimes you make up songs, 99 bottles of, of Coke on the wall, you know, you would sing, <laughs> that kind of thing. Now you don't have to sing songs. You just stick an iPad in front of the kid's face, and he's fine for a four-hour trip, or as long as the battery holds out. But they sang songs as they traveled, and this is one of them. The first section is about longing, verses 1 through 4. The second section is about traveling, verses 5 through 8. And the last is about delighting in the arrival. So the longing to get there, the traveling to be there, and finally the rejoicing when you get there, when you finally arrive. Or someone put it this way, the first section is expectation, the second section is expedition, and the final section, elation. Let's go on the trip, just for a moment. Look at verse 1, longing. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Now, the dwelling place of God was not all that lovely at that time. It was a tent. This is before the temple was carved out of wonderful stone, a magnificent architectural structure that dominated the landscape. This was a tent. But what makes the tent of God so lovely is not the building, it's the presence it's the fact that God is there. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about our new edition opening up just in a couple weeks. But that edition is worth, worthless. 
worse than worthless. If the presence doesn't show up, if God's not there, And so that's what they're talking about, how lovely is the place, not the building itself, but the place where you are. And then he uses a name that's repeated throughout the the psalm. The NIV has, O Lord Almighty. There's a Hebrew name for God that is translated Almighty, but this name is actually Lord of hosts. Or as the New Living Translation has it, the Lord of heaven's armies. I like that. Now, power is required to be the Lord of the armies of heaven. But it also talks about victory, and it talks about deliverance and defending the people of God in a warlike situation. And that's what we are in, especially as we're traveling to the kingdom of God. So on our side is the Lord Almighty, that is, the King of the armies of heaven. Keep that in mind as you walk from where you live to where God is. Here's the longing, verse 2. My soul longs, yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, that is my whole being, cries out for the living God. Did you know that all people are crying out for the living God? G. K. Chesterton said, every man is seeking God. The man who knocks on the door of the pub and desires to go in and drown out his sorrows, unbeknownst to him, is seeking God because he's seeking gratification. He's seeking the elimination of his burden and the gratification of his soul. He's simply going to the wrong place. Someone else said lust or longing in an unconverted man is like a man who's dying of thirst who longs for salt. (laughs) We long for the very thing that will only make our situation worse. But we're longing for God. Enough of the phoniness, enough of the Phariseeism, enough of religion and ritual without a reality, the reality of the living God. Aren't you tired of all that stuff? After the first service, a man came down to me and said, I'm, and he's an older gentleman, he says, I'm, I'm so disillusioned with Christianity. I don't know if it's Christianity or just Christianity as advertised, but I'm disillusioned. What has been promised has not been delivered. But that's where some of you are. You're just afraid to articulate it. I mean, isn't there an emptiness in your soul when you're merely going through the emotions and not having the reality of the living God? In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, As the deer pants after the streams of water, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. Oh, when, when shall I come and appear before God? I'm tired of the phoniness and the play-acting, the facade. I want God. Is that where you are? I hope so. The book of Psalms is a great place to go to find him. 
and to stir your hearts with emotions. By the way, the Psalms aren't intended to soothe you and placate you. They are intended to arouse you and disturb you and change you. There's a longing here, and it's a longing for God Almighty. So he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, because when you dwell in the presence of God, your life is filled with song. They will ever praise you. Let's go to the second section, the traveling. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Where are you, God? That's where I want to be. Whatever it takes, I'm going to seek him. Whatever it takes, I'm going to find him. Is there a God? That I'm going to spend my life seeking him. I'm on pilgrimage. But as you go on your journey, notice verse 6, you will pass through the valley of Baca. It's a very difficult term to define. It sounds like balsam wood, where trees of balsam might dwell, so a forest. Or the other idea is weeping. It sounds very much like the Hebrew word weeping. And that seems to fit into the context. They would pass through a valley of weeping, a dry and arid place where they would dig wells, hoping that they might find water beneath or building a cistern that might catch the water from above. And indeed... God, who is their strength, makes it a place of springs, and the autumn rains cover it with pools. You see, on the way, whether you're seeking God or following God, on the way, you've got to go through the valley. What's it called in Psalm 23? The valley of the shadow of... Have you been there with a loved one? Or maybe it's the valley of ill health or the valley of confused relationships or the, or the valley of, of horrible financial straits or the valley of being disillusioned with God. It's a place where weeping dominates. So dig a pool. <laughs> Seek God. Because they made the valley of weeping into a pool of springs. And the autumn rains came. So verse 7, they go from strength to strength until they appear before God in Zion, until they finally arrive at their destination. Zion is the hill just south of where the city of Jerusalem, the center of the city is now. It's David's old city, and that's where the tent was. That's where the dwelling place of God was. They wanted to get to Zion. It's interesting, in our natural bodies, we age and go from strength to weakness. As we get older, we get weaker. But spiritually, as you mature, you get stronger. As you trust God, you go from strength to strength. If you start with your own weakness, you go from weakness to weakness. But if you start with God's strength, you go from his strength to more strength, to more strength, until you finally arrive. Hear our prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Pray that your journey will be joyful even though it's hard. Prayer that the Lord, the King of the armies of heaven, will listen and guide you. 
So the longing, first four verses, the traveling, the next four verses, and now they arrive, verse 5. Look upon our shield, O God, he prays. That's probably a metaphor for the king. The king had his own shield. It had his own emblem. And one of the, one of the styles of Hebrew poetry, as we've mentioned, is this idea of parallelism. Not rhyming words, but parallel thoughts. So the second line will either agree with the first line, or it might contrast, or it might add to it. And here we have parallelism in verse 9. Look upon our shield, O God. That is, look upon with favor on your anointed. So it's the king is the shield. It stands for his authority and Basically, they're praying for godly leadership, which is, in the New Testament, what we are to do for our governors and leaders and presidents, elected officials. Pray that there would be godliness among those who have authority so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives and live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And now, a very familiar verse, verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You've ever heard that? Sons of Korah had two jobs, as I mentioned. One, to sing in the sanctuary. Two, doorkeepers at the gates. Now, being an usher may not sound like a very exciting job. And in this sense, he's kind of mentioning that it's not the most prestigious job. But I'd, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the abundance of the tents of the wicked with all that the wicked have. Why? Because the world's passing away and everything connected with it, but those who fear God and know God live forever. One day, just one day in your court makes it all worthwhile. The trip, the valley, the opposition... And now we come to verse 11. That was all introduction. Here's the sermon. Verse 11. This is one of my favorite verses. I've got it on the screen in the New King James because that's kind of the way I memorized it. And whenever I read it, whenever I quote it, it just warms my heart. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Is this true? Is this true? Yes. Now, the verse, we could look at it in a couple different ways, but first of all, I want you to notice the picture of God that he starts out with. A wonderful metaphor here. Metaphors use the word is. Similes use the word like. But here it tells us our God is a sun and our God is a shield. Now, don't take this with with utter literalism. Uh, We don't. We know it's a figure of speech, right? When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, no one thinks he's a loaf of wonder bread. No one thinks that he's made up of grains baked in an oven. No one thinks that. And when the Bible says that our God is a son, it's not pantheism. This is poetry. 
Poetry is condensed language. There's no more voltage per word in poetry. Instead of giving you long prose and explaining everything, it gives you volatile, powerful pictures and lets you think about it. Now, I acknowledge poetry is not my strong suit. I can remember going through college and reading the English poets and at the end of a poem saying, what in the world are they saying? I have no idea. And the teacher gets up and explains it. And it makes sense when I hear it from them. Poetry requires something of you. A little work, a little imagination, a little thinking. God gave us his inspired word in poetry with structure, three divisions in this song, with music notations, and it's all important. So here's the picture of God. First of all, he is a son. Not the literal son, although all cultures see a son, they worship the son, we worship the creator of the son who is, metaphorically, the sun. What does the sun do? The sun dominates the day. It dominates the landscape. You cannot ignore it. You cannot get away from it. It's regular every day. Now, of course, I'm talking in the Middle East, not Michigan. <laughs> you and I have to do a little imagination here. Think of a place where... <laughs> This was the arid climate. Every day the sun was regular. Every day the sun was hot. Every day the sun was there. You, it was powerful, dangerous, life-giving. The night was the time of thieves and of fear. The day was the time of new beginning, freshness. The sun gave light and it gave life. And that's what God is to us. All of those wonderful things, he should dominate our day. We should see him every day. We cannot ignore him. He gives us light upon every situation. He gives us warmth. He gives us light, life. Everything comes from him. He's powerful. He is dangerous. He supplies us with all we need. Wonderful provision. And for the traveler, the light gave them progress as they would travel by day and camp by night. But our God's also a shield. Fifteen times in the Psalms, this metaphor is used. And although it talked of authority in verse 9, and our God does have all authority, I think the shield here speaks of protection. Like in Psalm 3, verse 3, you are a shield about us or around us. And most of the uses of the word shield in the book of Psalms emphasize protection, how important that is for one who travels through difficult places. So you've got authority and protection. In the New Testament, the shield is the shield of faith. Here, the shield is our God who protects us. And that's who God is to us. Our refuge, our fortress, our shield and our defense. Who's your shield? The king of the armies of heaven. He's never lost a battle. He's my shield. By the way, the people of God are very fond of possessive pronouns. Did you notice earlier on in the text, he said in verse 3, you are my king, you are my God. Now he wants us to say, you are my son, and you are my shield. 
It's poetry. It's powerful. It tells us who God is. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us now the promise from God, what he gives. And the Lord gives grace. And the Lord gives glory. And the Lord gives goodness. We'll call it all good. The NIV translates it like this. The Lord bestows favor and honor. By the way, by the way, I think this is Hebrew parallelism. He, as the Son, gives us favor. It's the supply of his grace. Many translations have the word grace for favor. Think sons of Korah. <laughs> they can't get away from grace. Our God bestows grace. Now, understand God is more than a son and he's more than a shield, but to those who believe in him, this is what he is to us. And he bestows upon us grace, favor, glory, and honor. Don't you want to be in the presence of God who blesses you with such rich things? When you're saved, you're justified. When you're growing in grace and walking with God, you are sanctified. But when you die, you will be what? Glorified. God gives us glory. The glory that is his as king of the universe is given to us as his children and we will dwell with him forever. God says, that's what I want you to think about when you're on your journey. Know that I'm a son. Know that I'm a shield. Know that I give grace. Know that I give glory. Never forget that. And then he promises this. No good thing will he withhold. By the way, did you notice God is the one who bestows and God is the one who withholds. It's true in all of life. But no good thing will he withhold. In the Hebrew, the, the word thing is not there. No good will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The NIV has the word blameless. To those whose walk is in obedience to the righteous standard of God. Isn't that a fantastic promise? No good thing will he hold back. Oh, Lord, I really want that promotion. But I've got a problem. The boss's son works in the business, and he's conniving behind the scenes. He's lying about me. He's working in such a way that he's manipulating the promotion for himself. Lord, I don't have a chance. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You're tempted to submarine that guy. You're tempted to lie about him. You're tempted to make him look bad. You're tempted to manipulate as though you were unconverted, as though you had no sun and shield watching over you, as though you had no one who would give to you everything that's good for you. Do you trust him? No. Do you trust him? Apparently not. <laughs> I'm conniving to get my own way. Why not trust him for the promotion? But what if I don't get it? No good thing will he withhold from you. All you have to do is walk uprightly. That's it. Just follow him. Love him, trust him, obey him. That's it. You don't even have to do it perfectly because none of us do. Be blameless. 
You see, the problem is you and I define goodness differently than God does. That's the problem. Think Halloween candy. When I was a young boy, I would go trick-or-treating. I would devote my labor and energy to that night, and I gave it everything I had. I would wear no costume that would hinder my running from house to house in two different neighborhoods. I didn't take a little basket. I took a pillowcase. And my friends and I would see if we could fill that baby up. And I would come home and I would pour it on the living room floor. I still remember doing that. And I would be so excited and then mom would say, you can have two or three pieces. And I'd say, what? I want the whole thing. It's all good. It's all good. I like it all. I want it all. It's good for me. And my mom says, no, it's not all good for you at one time. You can have two or three pieces, and then I'll keep the rest and dole it out. But this is mine. I worked for it. I should decide when I get it. It's good for me. You know, sometimes wise parents will say in that situation, okay, go for it. Because sometimes the best teacher is something called consequence. By the way, God does the same thing for us. We cry out for meat, and he gives us our request, but sends leanness to our soul. Because he says it's not good. That promotion is going to destroy you. If you get that promotion, you'll have to work harder. It's going to destroy your family. You're going to lose your kids. It's the worst thing in the world for you. I've got something better for you. Trust me. But we don't. <laughs> we think that this is, that's poetry. No, no. It's rich theology. God is, and God does. Do you believe it? And so once we began to trust the Lord, by the way, that's how it ends. Almighty Lord, King of heaven, we are blessed when we trust you. You remember that you are blessed when you dwell in his presence, verse 4, when you draw from his strength, verse 5, when you trust him in every situation, verse 12. Then you are blessed. It was 21 years ago when one of my closest friends passed away. He was the pastor of a growing church outside of Chicago. The people loved him. They said it's not good for Rich to have cancer. His kids loved him. It's not good for Dad to have cancer. His wife loved him. It's not good. And I can remember sitting with Rich one time across the table, and he said this to me. I can still remember his words. This is God's plan for me, a plan that cannot be improved upon. And I thought, wow. And in a couple months after he said those very words, he was promoted to glory. And I thought, what does it take to get a person to love God and believe in the living God to the place where they say, it's all good. I mean, there's pain in it. There's weeping in the valley. But it's all good. 
because he's the one who so governs my life that he filters all of the bad and he withholds nothing that would benefit. Charles Spurgeon said, the nearer to God you are in your life, the sweeter will be your song. How true is that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us aren't singing today. The surroundings have kept us back from rejoicing. Lord, I pray that you will give us a picture of yourself like we've never seen before, that you are our sun and our shield, that you give grace and glory and all good, and we are blessed only when we trust you. Restore the song, O oh Lord. Cleanse our sin. Renew our hearts. Give us the living God.